Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to Trundle Bed Tales. Now tonight we're going to be doing an interview with John Miller, but as of right now we're having a little bit of a technical issue, so I am going to go ahead and uh, put you on to do a little housekeeping. But if you hear that sound which is the noise made by washing metal plates in a metal wash tub on the stove, then you know it's time for a little housekeeping. And here on Trundle Bed Tales, our housekeeping means giving you the information you may need about the show. If you ever want to listen to an episode live, but you don't want to just stream it through the computer, you can call in at... 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. That's toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. You can also use those same numbers to call in and ask a question and otherwise be on the show. Just make sure that you hit 1 when they ask you to so the little symbol comes up and I know you have a question so that you want to talk. Anytime you're streaming an episode, you can also join in the chat room. Unless there is some technical issue, I always open it up. You'll find you have the easiest time accessing the chat room if you log in, either using your Facebook login or if you go ahead and create a Blog Talk Radio account. The account is free and makes it easier to do several things, including sign up to follow shows and get an email anytime a new episode is scheduled or is archived and you can listen to the stream. If you enjoy Trundle Bed Tales, then you can find us many other places around the web as well. Besides appearing on the podcast, there's also a Trundle Bed Tales YouTube channel that has both travel diaries and short films about things related to Laura, like a video of what it's like to wade in Plum Creek and one of Shirley Nachmuth ringing the church bell, that's right, pause bell, in Walnut Grove. You can also find our page on Facebook and like it, our Twitter account, and I also have a Laura Ingalls Wilder interest group on LinkedIn, and you can find us there, too. So there's always more Laura things to talk about. I hope you enjoy the show and that you will take the time to comment, to like our pages, and to let us know what it is you like or don't about the show. 
Well, thank you, everybody. And what is happening is that I've tried to call John, and the number he gave me a number of times now, and the call isn't going through. So I am... Um, I am going to have to try something else. Uh, is your cell phone in here? Yeah. Okay. I'll go get that. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to have a guest talk just briefly about what she likes about SMED. Well, the best thing about the SMED is the Ingalls Homestead and the activities that kids can do. It's just amazing to stand there and watch the little kids pet the horse's nose and to think that they actually get to drive the team of horses out to the schoolhouse. They just think that is just amazing to do that. And it's a good experience for them to make rope. They don't understand that rope can be made. And the hay twists are something that is very unusual for the kids to get the experience to do. And everywhere at the homestead is so helpful and so pleased to see you. The thing I don't like, though, is the wind. The wind. The wind. It is amazing how windy it is in this mess. And it really gives you pause to stop and think what the pioneers out on the prairie really, really went through to be out there by yourself in a sadi or even a different type of house and not have near neighbors, not have a radio, not have a TV, not have the Internet, but you had the wind blowing and blowing and blowing. They really have to be admired for the things that the pioneers went through. Just amazing what sturdy stock they really, really were. Okay, that was my mother, Susan Utah, who uh, has had the great fortune to go to just almost as many times as I have. And I appreciate her her uh, her pitch hitting uh, and I did get a hold of John on a separate line, and I think this is him. Okay, I am here. Uh, oh, great. Well, thank you, John. I'm sorry we had so much trouble, but hopefully we got <laughs> the bad stuff out of the way at the beginning, and everything will go smoothly from here, right? Sounds good to me. Okay. Well, First, um, do you want to, I think probably most people in the audience know who you are, but uh, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, I'm a Missouri boy. My dad was a Lutheran pastor who traveled around a lot. I grew up in seven little towns and one uh, suburb of Chicago in the Midwest. I uh, went to the University of Missouri, University of Wisconsin, got a Ph.D. in history and wound up teaching American history at the University of Tulsa for one year and then at South Dakota State University 
for 29 years, and I've been out of teaching now. This is my 14th year out of teaching. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Has it been that long? It's been that long. Time flies when you're having fun. It does. So how did you get interested in Laura Ingalls Wilder? Uh, interesting question. Actually, being an American historian, I was a debater all through high school and college, was a real political uh, junkie, came up with John F. Kennedy in the 1960 election, uh, wound up uh, majoring in political science for two years at the University of Missouri before I switched to history, and I wrote my dissertation. It was kind of, first of all, I wrote a master's thesis on the 1932 election in Wisconsin and a dissertation on Governor Philip F. LaFollette of Wisconsin, a three-term governor in the 1930s, and expected that when I got out in the teaching profession, I'd probably continue with a focus on political history, but uh, in Instead, after I got my dissertation published in revised form uh, with the University of Missouri Press, I decided that I could go in two directions, and one of them was in the direction of small-town history, Um, having grown up in all these small towns in the Midwest, being interested in them, living in Brookings, which then was the fifth largest town in the state with less than 20,000 people. Now it's risen to the fourth largest town in South Dakota, with 21,500, I just, uh, over the years, got interested in small-town history, and it was when I saw a bird's-eye view of DeSmet's Dakota Territory, which was published in 1883, and realized that the places that were depicted in that uh, bird's-eye view were real places where Laura Ingalls Wilder had lived, gone to school, gone to church, interacted with other people, the railroad station, and so forth. That um, I wrote my first article, and well, first of all, I gave it at a conference, and uh, it was it was about community. So I got into Laura Ingalls Wilder by an interest in the study of small towns and in community. Well, that's that's kind of interesting because uh, Midwestern history really hasn't been a big focus of uh, the American history. I mean, there's been, a, uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, Northeastern history or Southern history, it really hasn't been um, something that, that uh, you know, has gotten many headlines. Uh, you know, there's uh, that's interesting. One of one of my former students, John Lauk, who came through about 1992, uh, and uh, <clears throat> wound up actually taking over my classes when I quit teaching, and now is a uh, senior advisor to U.S. Senator John Thune. In his spare time, has been writing all these books about Midwestern history, and has personally established a new organization called the Midwestern History Association, and we're we're both in agreement that uh, there's a big lacuna here, there's a big black hole that, uh, for whatever reason, and there aren't any really good reasons for it, uh, Midwestern history has suffered from an abysmal uh, neglect over recent decades, which is ironic considering that the it was the Mississippi Valley history 
organization, after all, which was the primary uh, historical organization in the United States in the early 1900s and later was transformed into the Organization of American Historians. <laughs> and uh, what had been a going concern for a number of decades, as you have just said, became sort of a forgotten uh, entity, and, and the Midwest itself has been much neglected uh, as a historical subject in comparison to the South or the West or uh, New England. Well, it is, too. So that's, um, I wasn't really expecting you to say that was the angle you got in with it with, but I'm glad that there are, and, and I would agree, there has been some uh, recent moves in the right direction because, personally, I think... Uh, the Midwestern history is pretty important, but that's probably because it's uh, in, you know, where I live and things, too. Uh, no, I did not get into uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder to uh, promote Midwestern history at all. It was to, as I said before, promote small-town history and, and my interest in community in general, and it's only lately. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I just kind of took it for granted. That's the way it is. You know, you live with the world as it is, and you try to make the best of it. And as time went by, I did become more interested in, mid in the Midwest, but it was only with John uh, John's book called The Lost Region here. It came out in 2014, and the organization, uh, the establishment of the Midwestern History Organization that uh, – I've uh, just got done, uh, there's going to be a release uh, here on April, what is it, 27th, 28th, and 29th down in Sioux Falls of a new book by the South Dakota Historical Society Press on Laura Ingalls Wilder and her Pioneer Girl book with about 12 uh, writers about Laura Ingalls Wilder and Rose Wilder Lane being there. And my subject, after all these years, after really more than 40 years of doing all this, is going to be on Laura Ingalls Wilder as a Midwestern Pioneer Girl. That was the last thing I could think of, the only thing I could think of at the time, at least, that I hadn't written about that I was interested in writing about, so it, it was a very long way around for me to get there, if you want to know the truth. Well, um, you, uh, one of the things I think is interesting is you sort of had a, um, a connection between two of the places where I lived, but kind of in reverse. I did. I did. It's totally coincidental, but I graduated from high school in Monette, Missouri, <clears throat> in 1962, which is about 100 miles west of Mansfield on Highway 60, you go through Springfield first and come down to Monette. Uh, so uh, I was a southwestern Missouri kid for at least for five years anyway, and Laura was a south-central Missouri woman for the last 63 years of her life, and we had that in common. Uh, which gave me, I think, a little bit of a feel for what the atmosphere, what the culture was like down in that part of the country. And then after moving up here in 1974, I discovered, and you know, what I knew about Laura Ingalls Wilder in 1974 when we moved to South Dakota was only the very vaguest, I, I knew hardly anything about her. If I knew anything about her at all, to tell you the truth, and only to discover how famous and important she was, uh, DeSmet is exactly 40 miles west of Brookings, or as she put it in her books, Brookings without a G. Uh, and uh, here, here 
I am connected by Highway 14 uh, in that sense to her, and uh, it is just uh, kind of interesting. Now, totally coincidental, in... though, however. <laughs> well, those make coincidences make the best stories. Uh, well, that's yeah, you've right. Written, you've written several books about Laura, so let's kind of run through what those books are. Well, the first one, you know, once I had gotten this article uh, written called Laura Ingalls Wilder's Dismet at 1883, uh, I, I, got that, I got that conference paper published with a little revision, and I had done so much. You know, I spent basically a summer working on the research and writing of it, and I had all this material. I thought, well, let's take a different angle on it. And so I wrote something that I called Freedom and Control, in Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little Town, and that got published in, and I even forget what the journal was, and then I got, I went to a semiotics conference at Brown University in 1991, and looking for a topic to write about there, I wrote about what I called fact and interpretation, a semiotic uh, interpretation of Laura Ingalls Wilder's writing, uh, got that published in a a uh, large book about semiotics, and I had three articles, and then I had ideas for more. <clears throat> and I pitched it to the University Press of Kansas when I heard the uh, major editor there of the University Press of Kansas talk the Missouri Valley History Conference one year, and she sounded interested. So I went ahead the next couple of years and wrote the other articles, and they bought into it, and they published that as uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little Town Where History and Literature Meet. It's kind of funny how these, it's like uh, you go wading into the river, and all of a sudden you're up to your waist in it. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a lovely book. I, I really, actually I'm about due for a re- reread on that one, but it's very interesting and that led you to a more general uh, biography, right? Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing that book, and I threw. Uh, I've just got done writing a article, a chapter, and a new book coming out with Hastings College Press, edited by John Lauk about Midwestern culture, and it's about Harvey Dunn, who the South Dakota's most famous painter, who actually grew up just about ten miles uh, west of uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, and seventeen years later. Than she and was actually connected to her by uh, Grace, Grace's uh, by his relationship with uh, Grace Grace Ingalls, um, and uh, that was the last chapter of the book. And uh, one of the reviewers said that they didn't see what talking about Harvey Dunn and Laura Ingalls Wilder had to do. I thought, well, if you don't understand, that's this is kind of the thing that you run into. Uh, people don't get what the point is. Um, but yes, while I was doing that, <clears throat> um, I was invited by the University of Missouri Press to write the biography of her for their Missouri biography series. And this was a little bit after William Holtz's book, The Ghost in the Little House, had come out from the University of Missouri Press. And they have a whole series of books on famous Missouri characters from Thomas, well, from John J. Pershing to Stan Musial and others. And so I thought long and hard because by that time I was very much into working on a book about small town boys who had grown up in the Midwest. 
And <clears throat> I thought, well, this is just going to delay that. But <clears throat> I thought, well, this invitation, this opportunity is too good to pass up. So I spent the next four years working on that biography. <clears throat> when I say four years, I mean in between teaching four four classes a semester <laughs> for the spring and fall semesters each year. Well, I always say uh, Becoming Laura Ingalls Wilder is the best Wilder biography with footnotes. So it really is. Everybody who's interested in Laura has to read that book. So I'm so glad that I, I'm going to make you my publicity agent. I'm going to make you my publicity agent. Well, I hope everybody's read that because uh, until somebody writes a new one, and I understand Caroline Frazier is working on a new biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. So uh, <clears throat> I'm surprised that somebody hasn't come out with one earlier to tell you the truth. There's plenty of room for more work on her. Uh, and then I think you have one more book about Laura. Well, I thought I was done with her after those two books, and, and by 1998, when that book came out, I was working hard on my Small Town Boys from the Midwest book, but, you know, then you'd have a conference here and a conference there and an opportunity to write a piece here and there, and uh, after a while, I had three or four or five or six uh, conference papers, and I got three or four of those published, and I had ideas for more, and I pitched the idea... Uh, at the Organization of American Historians Convention in Minneapolis on their 100th anniversary uh, in 2007, and uh, Gary Cass, their uh, an acquisitions editor, bought into it immediately. He thought that was a great idea. <laughs> so uh, I put everything together, and uh, in 2008 we come out with uh, – what you know, I consider my best book about Laura Ingalls Wilder. I don't know how many other people think so, but I think it's by far the most interesting stuff I ever wrote about her, um, which is called Laura Ingalls Wilder and Rose Wilder Lane: Colon Authorship, Place, Time, and Culture. And uh, I'm just not sure that everybody is as aware of that as uh, maybe I would like them to be. Well, it. it uh... It's certain, certainly an interesting book. I don't think I would say it was your best one, but it's, again, <laughs> I think a serious lore collectors ought to have a copy. And, uh, well, you, also you know, wrote some... okay. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, you know, I addressed this question, which continues to come up, the authorship question, and now we have this new book by Christine Woodside about libertarians on the prairie, which I've met and talked to, and I really appreciate uh, Christine, and uh, I think she's written a very interesting book that has a lot of good information in it, but uh, that anybody could go back to Bill Holtz's notion that uh, Rose essentially was the ghostwriter for the book. I thought we were way over that uh, that hurdle a long time ago, but I guess not. And uh, it just kind of confuses the public mind. If the public hasn't figured out this was a collaboration between those two and that Laura was the major uh, – uh, was the person who had the major role in writing the book and that Rose played a huge role in rewriting and editing and fashioning the book, well, I just don't know if there's progress. And uh, I also especially like the chapter about the little houses and both Laura and uh, Rose's interest in architecture 
and uh, in space and in houses, and I, I honestly think that's the best thing I ever wrote about Laura Ingalls Wilder, but we'll leave it for the readers to uh, figure if they agree with me on that or not. Yes, well, I think I haven't ever done an episode on the authorship question, but I really should sometime because I I think part of it is that people don't really understand what writers do and what editors yeah. do, yeah. and I think part of it is there's really psychologically reasons why certain people find it very um, appealing to get the idea that Rose really wrote the book. It's sort of like the quilt code nonsense. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. um, if you pitch it right, it's such a great story. It's People seem to think it's a shame to let facts clutter it up. But we will yeah. look well, if you haven't if you haven't actually looked at the manuscripts and carefully compared things and uh well anyway, you know Pioneer Girl too should have given people uh, a better notion too about authorship because I think Pamela Smith Hill is uh, right right on the ball in uh talking about that whole question when it came came to Pioneer Girl. Um but uh, it it keeps the waters boiling <laughs> And it, it keeps people coming back to conferences to see what different people's opinions are. Yeah, there's truths, half truths, lies, and BS. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm going to teach an Ollie course on. And uh, there's a lot of truths, half truths, lies, and BS about the question of uh, authorship floating around out there. You've got to figure out what you think is right. <laughs> Yeah, you had uh, written uh, a few non-Laura books, too. Yeah. And one of them is one of my favorites by you, The Looking for yeah. History on Highway 14. And uh, do you want to tell people a little bit about that one in case they have not read it yet, which everybody Well, has. thank you very much. I appreciate it because uh, um, until, I came, until I came out with, uh, with this book called Now Small Town Dreams, Stories of Midwestern Boys Who Shaped America, 2014. That was my favorite book. I don't know. I don't want to offend any Laura Ingalls Wilder fans, but uh, after all, I'm a small-town historian, and I talked about 15 small towns in South Dakota plus Mount Rushmore. It was a book entirely different from what I intended to do when I first started researching it very uh, with great intensity in 1985 on a sabbatical from teaching but it's it's an effort to show the variety of ways in which people can discover and find out about history and different kinds of sources source materials from photographs to novels to uh, uh, physical artifacts and uh, letters and uh, all ki- all kinds of things railroads and, small town Saturday nights and so forth and uh, I appreciate what you say because well I just had a lot of fun writing that book and talking to at least 120 people on my tape recorder and researching the old newspapers and putting putting a huge amount of work into it uh, what's uh, I call a historical journalistic travelogue down the highway well, I, I especially like the the chapter on Memorial Day, which I'm pretty sure that was a Smith chapter too. But you know, it was 
such a big event, and it has so almost completely dropped off people's radar that I think the description there is, you know, definitely an important thing to remember. And I definitely know people who live in, in bigger towns, and you talk about Memorial Day services, and they have no right. idea what you mean. It really is right. something. Well, but, thanks, uh, Joe. I, I think you're exactly right with that, and it's it's kind of a prismatic view of the past. It's that there's so many different ways in which we can look back and understand history and history of small towns, and we need to appreciate uh that uh, different people have different lenses through which they look at the past and uh, they have different ways of of knowing and uh, there's an unlimited number of stories we can tell and an unlimited number of ways in which uh, we can uh, interpret and uh, appreciate and understand the past. And you you just finished your uh, Small Town Dreams book. And there's, you also did uh, one of the history books of, of South Dakota, South Dakota, A Journey Through Time. I think that was you were re-editing a, a book. Is that right? Uh, no, that was, that was a National Endowment for the Humanities Initiative where one of my friends uh, who was involved with adult literacy, with the Literacy Council of South Dakota, knew that they were providing little grants to people who would write a book of state history that could be used by adult learners of reading, adults of their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s who had never learned how to read. And after I kept putting her off and saying I didn't have time to do it, I had too many other things to do, I finally, on her third try, I said, you know, Sally, I'm going to write this book, and then I'll get you off my back. Well, so we wrote the book. It came out, and then somebody in Brookings, who was the wife of a high, of a grade school principal, had that book and showed it to her husband. He said, this is just the book we've been looking for to teach South Dakota history to our fourth graders. And so since about 1999, we've been selling that book to grade schools all over the state. Um, in fact, one, the lady who showed it to her husband has died since then, so our four people involved are down to three, but we brought out a second edition that kind of updated it for 10 years, and now it's been 10 years since the last one we did. But that, that book has been used, and it has stuff about Laura Ingalls Wilder in it. Um, and I think we figured out probably at least half of the schools in South Dakota. You know, so it's probably my, well, may may not be as, sold as much as my biography of Laura Eagles Wilder, but it would have to be the second best-selling book I ever wrote. Well, uh, let's go back and talk about becoming Laura Eagles Wilder a little bit more. Um, now, mm-hmm. I, I heard you say before that one of the memorable reviews was that they were criticizing it for being fact-choked. And I, I've never forgotten you saying that because I just thought it was hilarious. I mean, that is what you want in a, a in deep depth biography, I would think, to be fact choked. But uh, is yeah. there anything you would change about that book now? That I would change? Yes. Well, you know, from the very beginning, anybody who reads it realizes that the real meat of that book is after chapter three. The first three chapters talk about her 
childhood uh, up to uh, the time that she left, uh, well, up until the time she got married, I guess. Uh, or, in other words, the stuff that she wrote about. And, you know, I did not make the kind of effort that Pamela Smith-Hill and that others have done to try to track down every single fact and everything. I relied heavily upon Bill Holtz uh, and, uh, oh, what? Oh, Laura, I, I forget the name of that author, that journalist who wrote that really nice book. And also my reading of the Dismet newspapers. I mean, I, I worked at it. I visited all the sites. and I, I put a certain amount of time in it, but, I, I mean, I didn't put the unlimited amounts of time into it that I could have. Uh, my real my real contribution there, I think, was in her adult years down in Mansfield from age 27 to her death because each chapter kind of covers a decade of her life. And uh, uh, so if I if I were to rewrite the book, I don't really know what I'd do. I guess I'd have to go back and <laughs> go through all the material that I did. Um, and if, okay. I mean, if I write, wanted to write the definitive biography, I would go back and re, retrace uh, the, the early... Uh, the early years of her life that, that she wrote about in her books. Or else I'd have to come up with some new ideas because, honestly, I just don't have any great new ideas about it. Well, um, people ask, uh, you know, a lot of times, what more is there to write about, Laura? And do you really think that there are areas out there that are are crying to be researched by you or somebody else? Is there any black hole that, that you'd point to? Well, you know, my third book, again, coming back to Laura Ingalls Wilder at Rosewater Lane, was an effort to address her from a variety of different angles. Uh, we had uh, the authorship question. Well, that's been rehashed and rehashed. The question about place um, I don't know how many people appreciated my article, which was originally an article uh, in this book on Mississippi River history about 1932, where I spent about two pages talking about Babe Ruth and his called shot. I thought that was kind of cute, but that was really a serious effort to deal with her and celebrity and Babe Ruth, who had a teammate who came out of Mansfield, uh, Missouri. Uh, you know, I can compared her to Thomas Hart Benton, and uh, what else did we, oh, I talked about her in comparison to Thomas Jefferson. This this new chapter that I have coming out, you know, I've, I kept thinking of what kind of new angles can I put on it, and this idea that Laura Ingalls Wilder was a Midwesterner, first of all, an upper Midwesterner most of her childhood days, except when they were down in Kansas, and then a lower Midwesterner down in Missouri, for the last 63 years of her life, had a huge impact on the way she must have thought and felt and behaved and got along with people because southern Missouri is an entirely different place than South Dakota, uh, 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 Wisconsin, and Minnesota are. And I have lived myself in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and South Dakota, and I have lived in Missouri. And I can tell you the kinds of people who live there and the cultures while similar in many ways, are also very different. And uh, this is something I'd like to research 
further to to learn more about the culture of the Missouri Ozarks, the religion down there, um, the the racial kinds of things that went on there. And I think this this would probably reveal somebody could write a book about this. And I'm not the person who's going to do it because I don't have the time. <laughs> I'd do it if I had unlimited amounts of time. But uh, that that could probably reveal to us a lot. Uh, both about her and her daughter, because her daughter wrote a, wrote a lot of fiction based on her experiences living down in uh, southern Missouri. Well, it was uh, such a... I remember going to a conference sometime, and I went to a session on Missouri and the Civil War, and I guess I kind of had thought Iowa's experience with the Civil War was pretty typical, but Missouri got so messed up in that time, I mean, it, it really, I think, does make Missouri a, a different place than, than the rest of the Midwest. So, yeah, well, they, I think that's right. They were down there in the middle of the Civil War. You know, there were major battles over by Springfield and over by Carthage, which were just a few miles away from where Mansfield was. Uh, the aftermath of the Civil War would leave, uh, you know, a lot of cultural after effects for many decades. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, go further into it, a first place to look would be James Rowan's book on sundown towns, where you will find that that was an area that experienced a period of ethnic cleansing. I mean, that's the word, I think that's the word he uses, or at least that's what he's describing after a after a uh, lynching of a black person in a small town down the road in 1894, they say the percentage of the black population was reduced by half. It wasn't very much to begin with, but these were towns that would have signs on them, you know, black person, except they would use a different term than that. Don't get caught in this town after sundown. And um, now this is not to say that that's the way it is now, but it had to have a major effect. And then there's the whole religious angle because Springfield is a hotbed of old time, or historically was a hotbed of old time religion with, uh, with uh, services coming out of there on Sunday mornings. I mean, I used to hear them on my radio. And, you know, Laura was a very religious person, and I think she was reinforced in that religiosity by the kind of, well, I, when I was down there doing my research on the book, I saw an ad in the local Mansfield, one of the, I think, two grocery stores there, that there was going to be a gospel hymn sing that night. And I had just enough time to hop in my car and get out there. And uh, for the next three hours, I had a wonderful night of music. It was all gospel music with probably 20 or 30 different groups. And uh, this is the, the kind of... Uh, um, well, atmosphere, cultural atmosphere in which Laura, Laura lived and thrived. And, you know, she, she went to the Methodist church because there wasn't any congregational. There wasn't the New England brand of religion down there so much as the Kentucky and Tennessee and Carolina brand. And that, that's a different kind of uh, brand of religion than she had known as a child. And I'm talking off the top of my head here, but that's the kind of thing that I would be interested in investigating and uh, finding out more about and seeing if there weren't reverberations of that in her thinking. And uh, um, I'm not sure it really would have gotten into her books so much, to tell you the truth, but it was part of her life. 
Now, uh, before we leave the coming Laura Ingalls Wilder for, um, well, for the last time in this interview anyway, I wanted to just ask you because this was mm. this was kind of driving me nuts. I bought the audio book of, of it to listen to it again, you know, in mm-hmm. prepping for the, the mm-hmm. interview, and I couldn't tell if it was a very lifelike electronic voice or if it was an incredibly mechanical-sounding human. I just kind of went back and forth. Do you know, is that an auto-reading, or did somebody actually record it? I I have no idea. I have never heard it. I, I have not, never listened to it. I'm not even sure I remembered that they have an audio book of it. But I know they have a Japanese version of it because they sent me a copy of it. But uh huh. Oh, well, well that's it's interesting. On, it's on audible.com, and that was one of the things. It was a little distracting either because I just kept trying to think, which way is this? Because it was right on the border there. It was, you know, okay. there, was a, there was like right. no emotion in it. But anyway, so uh, I just thought you'd know. Okay, Going on you know, that. there's a lot of things we author don't know about our own books, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I heard Richard Peck, who is a young adult author, give his speech on book covers one time. And if you ever get a chance to hear that, it is well mm. worth it. It is, it is pretty hilarious. Um, but anyway, uh, I want, if someone came to you and said that they really wanted to get started on researching Laura Ingalls Wilder, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. would you recommend that they start? Well, the major source of material about her, and one that's very accessible, you know, I haven't really done any work down there for 10 years or more, um, is the Hoover Library, the Hoover Presidential Library in West Branch, uh, Iowa. It's a wonderful place to work. Um, the stuff is accessible. Their policy on photocopy aid was very liberal back then. It only cost 10 cents a page, and I just Xeroxed up the storm for the several weeks that I was there doing my research and, and got a lot of stuff done. And it's Iowa City and West Branch are nice places to visit and nice places to hang out. So, uh, um, you know, they got the major, they've got the major stuff. Uh, down in down in Mansfield, what they have there, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I went there, I looked around, I asked a little bit, but I think anything, uh, you don't know, really need to read the original handwritten manuscripts they have. They've got that on microfilm, and you can get that from the State Historical Society of Missouri. And um, and probably this goes to the question you asked before: what what I might what I might do now? I'd probably try to probe what they have in Desmet because Desmet has a real nice facility there. But I don't know exactly what all they have there either, um, and how accessible that is to general researchers. I've been thinking about going over there and checking it out because uh, I I do have an idea about a possible fourth book on Laura Ingalls Wilder if I'm crazy enough to uh, take the time to work on it and that's that's where I'd go now to see if they have anything there that maybe would add to what I know or what we all want to know. Well, 
Well, uh, I think that you, you should go and find out, and then you can report back and tell us. Well, you know what? I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm aware every day of how there's a uh, window closing on the amount of time I have left. And I have so many balls up in the air right now and things that I'm working on and I want to do that it's just like back in 1994 when I was invited to write the biography and I thought long and hard about it. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm a little sorry that uh, I I didn't go in a different direction. Uh, I'm not saying I'm sorry I got these books written, but I'm kind of, you know, we all have a limited amount of time in our lives, and uh, <laughs> we can't do everything, so we've got to choose. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, it would be nice if there was an unlimited amount of time. Now, let's let's kind of circle around one more time, and. <clears throat> Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you became a reader? Well, very simply, my dad, you know, was a preacher, and he was a very, very well-educated and intelligent person. My mom was a very <laughs> intelligent person, but she and she was the first she was the ninth of ten children, and she was the first to get through high school. And so, like women back in the 1940s, she had less opportunity to pursue that and I don't think I understood until a long time after I got married just how smart a person she was anyway uh, my dad wanted his kids to get a good education and I was the oldest and he started out with me as a guinea pig and I can still remember sitting on the front porch there in Cuba Missouri learning to read on Dick and Jane books. I remember it very, very distinctly. We'd both be sitting there on that stoop, and I'd be, look, Dick, look, run, Jane, run, see, spot, go. And so by four years old, I was reading, and then uh, we moved to another town, and he uh, was able to put me in the parochial school, and I only spent about three months in first grade because we moved there in March, and then I went straight to second grade, and... I was on my way, and uh, he he got me. Uh, he started getting these landmark books, one a month. They get oh, they get pulled out. Maybe you learned books. I love landmark books. I have a oh, whole see. shelf of landmark books out in my Laura building because they're just I I just yeah. all of them yeah. except I thought the Wright brothers one was was really right, right. kind of yeah. stupid. And yeah. uh, the General Lee and the Road to Honor, I did not like because right. I don't think he did the Road to Honor. But other than that, I love all of them. So right. Right. Uh, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, in this little this little one-room school that had this little library, just a little room off the back and not a whole lot of books in it, uh, landmark books were my introduction to history and the geography the Erie Canal, the Pony Express, Sam Houston, you know, the Constitutional Convention. And I'm sure that's what got me going on the way to be interested in history, too. But then I discovered at the age of 9 or 10, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and it's stories about the St. Louis Cardinals. We lived 40 miles from St. Louis, so I became a big baseball fan reading the stories and listening to reading the stories in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and... Uh, uh, listening to Harry Carey announce the games on the radio. So 
I always say I became I came to history by that kind of process and and also by being a baseball fan and a baseball player and so I I'd read I'd read the base by the time I was 10 years old I'd start buying baseball magazines for 25 or 35 cents and read them cover to cover two or three every year and and the rest the rest is history I guess you could say then I got into politics as a debater and current events and that's been that's been my life since I was 10 years old reading reading and writing and talking <laughs> So, uh, do you have any uh, any events coming up that you're going to be doing, book signings or talks or anything like that? Well, there is the Laura Ingalls Wilder Conference uh, down in Sioux Falls, and anybody who's within shouting distance of it, I would encourage them to look up, just Google the State Historical Society of South Dakota, South Dakota State Historical Society. It's their annual conference. Pioneer Girl Perspectives on the 28th and 29th of April, and presumably they will have the new books hot off the press at that conference and be signing books uh, the week before at the Dakota Conference at Augustana University in Sioux Falls. They always have book signings, but I don't know that I probably won't be signing any books there because I don't have any new ones out lately. But uh, that's also a, a place that people would be interested in. But uh, if there's anybody out there who could pay my expenses uh, to come, I'd be I'd love to come and give them a 30 to 60 minute talk and and sign some books. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was down in Iola, Kansas, here in August uh, with an old. Uh, friend from graduate school who invited me down to the Iola Book Festival and had a ball had a ball down there and signed signed a small number of books, not very many, but each one counts. Well, I'm looking forward to that conference in Sioux Falls. I've paid my registration up and oh, good. Uh, I will look forward to seeing you. I've gone to um well, they had me come speak last year, and the theme was food. And boy, I was very impressed how well it worked. Uh, it just really was. Yeah. So I am looking forward to the one in April. So yeah. I hope that it's yeah. going to be uh, live up to all of its promise. And I'm glad you're going to be there too. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the book because if you look, you will you will see the lineup of uh, speakers there, and any Laura Ingalls Wilder fan will recognize most of those names. I don't know them all, to tell you the truth. Um, there are a couple who <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to have Bill Holtz there, or uh, who else is not going to be there that might be? Well, Christine Woodside. I don't know if they invited her or not, but uh, despite the fact that I just slammed her book there a few minutes ago. I really like her, and I like her book, but I don't agree with her general conclusion about the authorship of uh, the books, but that's that's what makes this Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff interesting, because there is a, a fair amount of controversy involved with it. Yes. Um, there's always, I think, something, some new take to find on things. Uh, they were just, you know, a normal Midwestern family. I mean, a lot of the things they did, my family did too. But um, at the same time, uh, it, it was really a unique set of circumstances. So there's, there's 
just a lot to look at and new ways to look at it. The big, the big question that I have not resolved in my own mind, and I don't think Bill Anderson and some others have either, is did they actually ever really touch base in or live in Missouri on their way to Kansas, or didn't they? Because there are some people who are sure that they did, and then most of us are skeptical. We don't think we've seen the smoking gun that would prove that they were ever down in uh, Cheriton County, Missouri. But do you know the answer to that question? Or do you have a thought on it? Well, did they actually did they actually stop in and live in Missouri for a while before they went to Kansas? Well, I I am probably not the best person to ask because I would say Penny Linsmeyer and Nancy Cleveland have done more on that particular area than I have. I tend to be more interested in her as a farm wife in that kind of yeah, of area. Right. But, uh, I would say I would find it strange if they yeah. had stayed very long in Missouri just because oh, yeah. they yeah. didn't have much time. And oh. I mean, if, if they're going right. to leave Pepin when it's fairly well established, they left and get right. back there, there's only so much time. And if yeah. they were going to, you know, at least, you know, build a house and plant yeah. a field in Kansas yeah. again, you know, it's just, and, and I can't believe that they'd actually start a new start someplace and then give it up after a couple yeah. months. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah. it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, no. I would say if they were in Missouri, it was some yeah. sort of short term feeding and they really hadn't settled, you know, more yeah. camping than settled. Would right. be my opinion. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. They wouldn't have had much time. And, uh, um, and also, I agree with you know a lot of a lot of these real little tiny details about their lives, while of some interest, really are less important than the big questions, like you say, the big uh, thematic questions about what was a life of a farm wife, or what was it like on the frontier, or what were relationships, you know, between the races and that kind of thing, and exactly where they lived or didn't live. Uh, or where exactly Baby Freddy was buried or something is really of less significance. And, but still always of interest if you're a fan. And your mention of Penny Linsenmeyer and uh, Nancy Cleveland, you know, I've talked to them, and they're reminders of the kind of work that you, Sarah, and all the other people who are involved in this do so much uh, uh, good work that uh, I'd just like to say that we all appreciate uh, and you're kind of the unsung heroes of this Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, project. Or well, maybe you're more you. sung of than I realize. I'm, don't, I'm not aware of everything. I don't pay any attention to the websites or anything like that, to be honest with you. But Well, I will take it as a kindness anyway, and I don't I don't think I probably am very sung, <laughs> but uh, I I do my best to get the information out there. And my personal interest is in social history, you know, with the yeah. food waves and decos and things. Uh-huh. So that's really kind of where my focus has been as a mm-hmm. researcher. But um, 
yes, there are definitely people out there toiling away and and really nailing details. So um, to have, uh, I think, those people doing uh, doing the work, though the next step in sharing it is is where there's often a a problem. They they always talk about that with researchers that it. Uh, at some point you need to stop researching so you can write the book and get the information out there. And it's, I think for a lot of people, it's way too tempting to just keep researching. Right. Very good point. I agree 100%. <laughs> okay. Well, we are quickly running out of time. I bet you didn't think that was an hour, did you? Well, I don't know. You start talking about War Ingalls Wilder and time can fast, pass quickly. <laughs> Well, thank you, John, for coming on. I appreciate it. And I am going to go ahead. We've just got a couple minutes left of the episode. So I just want to uh, thank everybody for tuning in today and sticking with me despite the technical issue right there at the beginning. And I want to remind you that next week, the 22nd, at the same time, uh, same bat time, same bat station, we're going to be doing uh, an interview with Linda Halpin about quilts in Laura and especially focusing on her uh, recent uh, research in the dove in the windows pattern. And she thinks she has nailed down what that pattern actually would have looked like. So I'm looking forward to that. And I hope that um, I'll see all of you back here next week. And for all the future episodes of Trendle Bed Tales, remember to brighten the corner where you are. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.